Welcome to the New Hope Podcast. Our mission at New Hope is to engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time. We pray this message encourages you in encountering God's love and displaying it to your city. We hope to see you soon. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're taking a break from our Story of Scripture series to address the current events that are going on in our country from a biblical perspective. We want to address um, the reality of the protests, the riots, the racial and social injustice that we see around us, but we want to see it and look at it from a biblical perspective. There has been a lot of recommending of books in the past few weeks. For those who are wanting to learn more about racial tension and uh, racial injustice in America, people have been having conversations and I've, I've seen recommendations of books, of movies, and of articles, but I've seen little talk of the Bible itself in these conversations. I recognize that this is mostly due to the fact that people aren't arguing over whether the Bible um, condemns racism because it does. And so I understand that the majority of the conversation is around racism in America and the historical reality of that. And that's not explicitly addressed in scripture. And so, yes, we do turn to other books, movies, articles, and other types of teachings to help us see the history of America. But I want us to see that that when we talk about racism in America, we're not just talking about it from uh, a historical perspective. We're not just talking about it from a social reality perspective. But we're trying to show and communicate what the Bible says about these issues because what we believe and what the Bible says about these issues, it will affect how we do everything else. So as Christian, the Bible needs to be the center of our conversations. We as Christians are not, um, uh, let me say it this way, we as Christians are not condemning racism just because it's the popular thing to do. And, and we're glad that it is the popular thing right now to make sure that this is being con- condemned because in history in America, it has not always been the popular thing. And so I'm grateful that our culture has come to a place that the majority is, is focusing on this issue in our generation again and again. But I want us to see what does the Bible say about this? Because I am condemning racism not because of the influence of the culture around me, but I personally want to condemn racism because the Bible has built that conviction into my heart and then it is applied in my life and in my actions. We as Christians must hold the Bible to the center of these conversations. There's been a lot of conversations in the last few months around the pandemic, around racial injustice, around a lot of chaos that is going on in this world. A lot of chaos brings a lot of opinions. And I want to tell you something, that we have differing opinions at times. This political party, this political party, this person, this person, this city, this city, this country, this country, different perspectives bring different opinions. But I want us to see something. Our opinions are not equal with what Scripture says. Therefore, Scripture must form our opinions, not the other way around. We don't bring our opinions and then let that dictate what we read in the text. 
Even though we can't be fully objective, we recognize our subjectivity, we recognize our opinions, and we submit them to the Word of God, and we go, God, what does your Word say? And let it then build a conviction and let it define my opinion. And I have had too many conversations where opinions has been authoritative over how we read Scripture instead of the other way around. And so I want us today to look at God's Word and let it form our conviction on racism. Let it form our conviction on racial injustice. Let it uh, form those things and then let us apply it. I want to say before we get started, I want to just preface and I want to say this clearly. Don't take any singular statement out of context in this sermon. To to understand any statement in the sermon, you must place it in the context of the entire sermon. I will say phrases that can be misunderstood if you don't understand my overall point. Understand how I'm using words and phrases in the greater context of this sermon. If you take phrases out of context, you will think that I am minimizing certain things that I affirm. Therefore, at the beginning, let me tell you what I affirm and what I condemn as we jump into this topic. I affirm the protests that are going on in our city and in our country, but I condemn the riots and looting. I affirm that our country has a racist past and present that permeates more of our life and our culture than we are comfortable to admit, both at a personal, individual, and systemic level. I condemn the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, just to name a few in recent history. I affirm the need for criminal justice reform. I condemn the idea that all police are bad and that we don't need police at all. I affirm the call to stand up and demand justice. I affirm our country needs to change. I affirm that we need to change. I affirm that I need to change. I do not minimize any of these truths in the sermon that is about to be preached, but I only at times will use them in relation and adjacent to the biblical text. It might seem like I'm minimizing them, but instead I'm trying to magnify the biblical text. And so I'll say that numerous times at moments. I'm not minimizing this, I'm magnifying this. But if you take the one statement that sounds like I'm minimizing the protests or sounds like I'm minimizing racial injustice in our culture, and if you take that out of context of the greater point, you'll miss the whole point and you'll misquote me. So please, as we move forward, give me grace, understand my point as I relate these cultural moments to the biblical text. As we jump into Ephesians chapter 2, our main text today is going to be verses 11 through 22. But we can't understand Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 without once again understanding it in the whole text of, of the letter. In the same way, I'm asking you to be gracious to me and understand each individual word and phrase within the whole context of the sermon. We must do that with God's word. And so I want us, we can't study all of Ephesians, but we can focus in on Ephesians 2, the first half, which gives a picture and a mirror and the application in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So the first half gives an understanding to the second half. And so would you grab your Bibles in Ephesians 2, and I want to read verses 1 through 10. We won't take long on these verses, but let me read them 1 through 10 to set us up, and I'll point out just a couple of things. Ephesians 2, verse 1. 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." There's three just kind of individual breakdowns I want you to see in these first 10 verses that we see the exact same uh, outline, three breakdowns in the second half of our primary text, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the first thing we're going to notice is that we see there's a real problem that is defining what we used to be. We used to be dead. Right? We used to be fully separated from God. We used to be dead in our sins with no hope and no salvation in this world. But then second, verse four tells us, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards you or towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. First, the first three verses tell us what we were. Verses four through nine tell us what God did, specifically what Jesus did for us. What we were, what Jesus did for us, and then thirdly, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What we were, what Christ, what Christ did for us, and what we are now. And what is the result of what Christ has done for us? His saving of us is his workmanship where we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This flow from where we were to what Christ did and the reality of what Christ did in our lives is the three steps steps that are taken in our text in verses 11 through 22. Not only do I want us to notice those three steps, but I want us to notice the reality of the whole of that text. That we were dead, hopeless, nothing we could do to change our reality. But Christ did something for us and to us. He died for us and then saved us. In the same way that Christ was raised to life, we were raised to life. Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father and we were seated with Christ. Let us see the salvation that it comes in Jesus. Let us see the reality of the good news of the gospel. That you and I needed reconciliation between us and God. As we talk about today's sermon, the cross and racial reconciliation, let us see first the reconciliation that is far greater than any reconciliation that is necessary between person and person here on earth. But it's the reconciliation that was necessary between God and man because of our rebellion and sin that said, you know what, we want to be about us, not about you. And therefore, because of our sin, there was this divide that was inseparable. But Christ in his love, he crossed that divide, paid the price to rescue us, to save us, and to reconcile us unto him. So let us see this reality of Christ's reconciliation of us and let that be the foundation for our text today. 
And so jumping into our text today, we're going to see first that same progression of what were we, what has Christ done for us, and what then does that now mean for us? What does that mean as the result? Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. I do not want to minimize the racial injustice and the need for racial reconciliation in our culture, in our city, and in our world today. I don't want to do that, but hear me. What you and I are facing is not as bad as what this text is talking about. Once again, I'm not minimizing, I'm magnifying. I'm not minimizing our situation, but I want us to see and magnify the reality of this situation. Now, if you're following along in our story of scripture and you're reading along, we've talked about covenant. We've talked about how due to Adam and Eve's sin that we've been separated from God, but Christ and God, the Father and the Holy Spirit together as one God are working their redemptive plan through covenant. The the most intimate relationship possible. And the covenant begins, this redemptive covenant primarily begins with God and Abraham. He calls Abraham aside and he creates a covenant with Abraham. He continues that covenant on through his Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into the Exodus where in the Ten Commandments and there on Mount Sinai, God um, affirms and makes the whole covenant with the people of Israel. And there's this covenant relationship where there's covenant promises, there are covenant blessings, where God has set them apart as holy unto himself. This makes them unique than any other nation. This makes them unique more than any other ethnic people. God God creates this um, uniqueness amongst this nation. He creates covenant promises. And the others, the Gentiles did not have these covenant blessings. They did not have this type of intimate promises and hope of being the people of God. Now, I want to say this so you understand how these two are different and how what is being described in this text is greater than our culture today. The racial injustice, discrimination, and divide in our culture and world today is a man-made division. It's a man-made division. It's due to sin. It's due to a lot of different characteristics, but it's a man-made division. But I want you to point, I want to point out that the division between God's people and the Gentiles is a God-made division. So just by definition, man-made versus God-made, God-made is greater. The divide is stronger. It is determined by God that these people are set apart. Now, listen to me. That covenant purpose was to set them apart so that they would be a blessing to the nations. Genesis 12, Psalm 67. 
So it's not that God didn't love the nations, but through his covenant redemptive plan, he was going to work that through a determined group of people so that his covenant blessings would go to the nations. But nonetheless, there was a very real divide in the Old Testament between ethnic peoples and God's covenant promises. Practically, we see this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. We see this play out. You shall not intermarry with them, talking about the other nations. He's talking to the people of Israel, and he's saying, You shall not marry other people of other nations. Giving, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. So there's this clear that as you move forward as a country, you must keep this, um, uh, you must keep this division amongst them. Now it's not, once again, let's be clear that we, people often read this text and will say, see, God is racist. See, God loves this ethnic people over that ethnic people. And we make this about ethnicity, race, or the color of one's skin in this text. But you've got to read verse 4 because this has nothing to do with ethnicity and has nothing to do with the color of skin. Verse 3, what we just read, is an application of verse 4, the truth, which is this. For they, Deuteronomy 7, 4, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. What, what are we seeing? That God is the God of the Israelite people. He has created this division. He has determined this division between this ethnic people and the rest of the ethnic people in the world. Not because he loves this color, ethnicity, or people more than the other, but because the others did not worship God. And if they would bring in the worship of God with the things of this world, if you co-opt the worship of idols in this world into the worship of God, you no longer have a faithful worship of God. Why? Because the first commandment and the core of all commandments is that you must love God above all, with all. That there are no other gods above God. And so when what happens if you marry someone, the, the most intimate relationship here on earth, and they do not love and worship the God that you do, then your allegiance is divided. The demand here for division was not a racial divide, but it was a worship divide that just happened to play out because of people, groups, worshiping different gods. We see this same truth in the New Testament but applied differently, which fully defends this point. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally, unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What's the point? The same truth of Deuteronomy, that you are not to marry someone who does not have the same worship and values as you, which happened to be all other peoples of the, at that time, if you marry them, they will cause you to turn away to other gods. And the same is true in the New Testament when Paul says here, if you marry someone who unequally yoked, if you marry a non-Christian and they do not worship Jesus, they too will cause you, your allegiance to be divided and not be fully faithful to Christ. The question here is not over color of skin or race. The question here is over who do you worship? So I want to be clear, though, that although there was a real divide in the Old Testament, 
and it happened to be applied amongst ethnic peoples. It had nothing to do, the division was not because of ethnicity. The vision was because of who you worshiped and ethnicities happened to, to worship different gods. Therefore, don't marry across those lines. But it was a very real discernment. And the Old Testament, they would play this out. They would play this out all the way into the first century where certain people could go into certain places. That if you were Jew, you could, 100% Jew, you could go into certain places of the temple as someone who wasn't. And so they saw a hierarchy within holiness based off ethnicity. ethnicity. Now listen to me, that we too often do the very same thing. But the point is, as we look at the divide here in verses 11 and 12, they were a God-determined divide based off faithfulness and worship, but nonetheless, they were a real determined divide across ethnicities. That's what you were. Why am I painting this picture? I'm painting this picture because what we just talked about is still a very real thing today. I wanna get personal for a second. I'm getting real personal for a second. When my wife and I were in the process of adopting our little girl, who, if you do not know Ella, she is uh, African-American, beautiful little girl. When we were in the process of adopting her, we were told by people that we were sinning by adopting her based off Deuteronomy 7.3. That God had determined that ethnicities and races cannot cross within families. And I want to just take a moment, and I wanna, I've spent all this time addressing that so that we could see that the color of one's skin was never the issue. It was the allegiance of one's heart. The allegiance of one's heart determined who you marry, not the color of one's skin. And therefore the crossing of races and ethnicities and families is not an issue to God. And in fact, to say so is to read our own prejudices and racial biases into the text. Because if you clearly read the text, the issue has nothing to do with color, it has to do with who you worship. But I want us to see how we can so easily take something and apply it. And one of the reasons, and one of the things that we need to confess as a church, maybe not church new, new hope, but church here in America, is that we have a used and abused scripture to the ends of racial division, and it must end. And so I am taking extra time, and this is gonna be a long sermon, so just buckle up. But I'm taking the time because we need to tear down these lies of unfaithfully coming to scripture on what the Bible says on these issues. But nonetheless, the division was God-determined, and we try to take that Old Testament, God-determined, which we're going to see in a moment, has been destroyed in the blood of Jesus that no longer exists. We try to take it and apply it so that we can be comfortable about who we live amongst or who we relate to in our community. We take God's word and we abuse it in our culture and in the process, we are gaining comfortability maybe in our own racial prejudice, but we are losing the gospel and the testimony of Jesus, and we are wrong. Church, let us repent. At one time, Paul is now talking to the Gentiles. He's now talking to the other ethnicities. Therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, 
meaning you're Gentiles in the flesh. He's talking to physical, just practicals called the uncircumcision. He's being a little rhetorical. He's making fun for a little bit, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So he's saying, you in the flesh are uncircumcised and you're made fun of that and you're seen as different. You are seen as other by those who are circumcised in the flesh. He's about to get at the issue because it's not, once again, a physical fleshly deal. It's a heart issue. So he's making fun of those who are making it a fleshly issue. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in this world. Listen to me and I'll end this right here. When I say I'm not minimizing the reality of our culture and the racial division and justice around us, I'm not. But I am magnifying by saying the textual context was far greater of a division than what you and I are facing today. To be without God in this world and to be and needing the reconciliation between God and man is far greater than reconciliation between person and person. But this is good news because the rest of this text tells us how that great divide was solved and accomplished. Therefore, our issue, which is great, can also and is, can be solved and dealt with. Two truths I want us to walk away from as we move forward in the text. The first is this. Reconciliation doesn't need to be achieved. It needs to be applied. Reconciliation doesn't need to be achieved it needs to be applied. What I mean by that is let's look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, remember, that's what you were, verse 11 and 12. You had no hope without God in this world. You were strangers and aliens and you had none of the covenant promises. But now, listen to this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. You used to be far from God. You used to be far from the hope of God. You used to be so far you had no hope. You were so far from the blessings and the covenants of God. But now you who used to be far have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's what I mean, that reconciliation doesn't need to be achieved, it needs to be applied. When we talk about that reconciliation needs to happen, we talk about it like in a sense it needs to happen in the future. And now this is a technicality play on words and we're saying the same thing but using different words. So does it really matter? Essentially, we're still saying the same thing by saying we still need to see reconciliation applied. You say achieved, I say applied. It's the same difference. It still needs to happen. Agreed. But it's not just the technicality of words because what happens if we try to apply or think that we need to achieve reconciliation as Christians without understanding the fact that Christ has already achieved the reconciliation, then what we're doing is we're taking the solutions of the gospel 
and we are applying those solutions to the world around us, but if we apply them without the gospel itself, we are bankrupting those solutions of gospel worth. Therefore, it's important for us to make the distinction of what needs to be achieved and what has just simply needs to be applied to our culture. And I want us to see that the reconciliation has already been achieved. That Christ sufficiently, through his blood, has achieved that reconciliation. Furthermore, for verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who made us both, meaning both the two that are represented are God's covenant people, Israel, and the rest of the nations, the rest of the ethnicities. For he made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice it's not he will do this. He has done this. If we claim the victory of the cross of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, this has happened. Christ has done this. He has resurrected us. He has been resurrected. He has made us alive because he has made us alive. These are all past tense, something that Christ has done, and he is applying to us in salvation that in the second half of chapter 2, we must conclude the same, that Christ has already achieved the reconciliation. In the first half of Ephesians 2, he achieved the reconciliation between God and man. In salvation, personally, he applies that achievement to my life in salvation and justification. In the second half, Christ too has also achieved reconciliation between all peoples and God, which is the main point of the argument, but also between person and person. It just needs to be applied. The distinction is important because the application of that achievement listen to me the application is the solution the achievement is the gospel but if we try to apply gospel solutions without the the gospel we bankrupt those solutions of gospel worth once again I'm not minimizing the solution I'm not minimizing protesting. I'm not minimizing political reform and going and voting to bring change. I'm not minimizing all those things that I affirmed at the beginning of the sermon. But if we are for those things and we take the solutions and I'm for those things because I believe the gospel convicts me and calls me to those things. And, but if I bring that conviction and that solution, but I forget the gospel foundation, I bankrupt that solution of its gospel worth. So it's not just a a technicality of words, achievement versus application. It's important for us to see that the victory has already been won. We look at the history of America and go, will we ever see racial reconciliation? And, and, And sometimes it can go, cause us to lose hope because we see it so slowly happening from generation to generation. Every generation we take steps forward, praise God for that. But sometimes we can lose hope. And I'm here to tell you, don't lose hope because it's already happened that Christ has already broken down the wall of hostility in the gospel. It just needs to be applied individually and systemically in people and the culture around us. If we take the solutions of the gospel and apply them without the gospel, we bankrupt those solutions of their gospel worth. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I want you to hang on to that dividing wall of hostility. I'm gonna come back to that in just a second. How did he do that? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. 
What is one of those law and commandments expressed in ordinances? Deuteronomy 7.3. You're no longer, you're, you're unable to marry across ethnic boundaries because they might lead you into idol worship. That ordinance has been destroyed. Why? Because it's no longer we as the people of God and not the people of God. Why? Because it just said that for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. The reason why there was that division is because one group was part of God's covenant people, the other group was not, and there was an issue of worship. But now in Christ, through the blood of Jesus, that division has been taken away. We are now one. Therefore, there are no longer the commandments expressed in ordinances that cross ethnic bounds, that that has been destroyed. So the first 11 verses 11 and 2 that first, when I said that that division is far greater than the division we're facing, Christ destroyed that. You better believe he can destroy the divisions in our culture today. He abolished the law and commandments. Deuteronomy 7.3, the application of faithfulness and worship, the application that says you can no longer marry across ethnic bounds, you can no longer cross that barrier, that has been destroyed in the blood of Jesus. Because it's all about the heart, not about the flesh. By abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. It's not that Christ reconciled the Jews and then he reconciled the Gentiles, is that he reconciled us as one unto himself. There is no longer division. God's covenant people is not determined by a physical ethnicity or color of one's skin. God's covenant people is the church, the body of Christ, all ethnicities, all, ethnicities, all colors of skin, all as one. There is no longer a division but we are one, God's covenant people. That he did this through the cross, that he might reconcile us both in God, in the body, through the cross, thereby killing hostility. I said I wanted to come back to this idea of the dividing wall of hostility. Twice now hostility has come up. I wanna read a verse to you, Acts 21, 28 through 29. Crying out, men of Israel, help. They're, they're accusing Paul, the writer of this text, the Jewish leaders, people are accusing Paul. Men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, what you didn't know historically, that surrounding the inner courts was four and one half foot wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Israelites, the court of the women, and that kept Gentiles from ever coming to and near the sanctuary. There was a literal in the temple, a literal dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Literally a dividing wall. 
A historian at that time, Josephus, says that there were 13 stone inscriptions erected at various points on this wall that, had the, that warned Gentiles not to enter, and if they did, there was going to be the penalty of death. Two of these inscriptions have been discovered for us today through archaeological evidence. The text on the, those, in, those two tablets on those wall reads this. No foreigner or Gentile is to enter within the forecourt and the wall around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for the subsequent death. I want you to get that I believe Paul here is not being metaphorical when he's talking about this dividing wall. Although it is applied absolutely to metaphorical ideas of dividing wall. But what Paul's doing here is he's talking to a literal wall in the temple that divided Jew and Gentile. One that he was accused of taking an Ephesian across that wall. So imagine that the Ephesian church knew that story. So as he writes this truth to the Ephesian church who knew that story all too well, they would have known exactly what he meant when he said this statement that for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Literally a wall of separation. But in Christ, he broke down that. It has already been achieved. We just need to apply it. Now that doesn't change some of the practicals. Okay, good pastor, I, I'm with you. It's been achieved, but we need to apply it. Nonetheless, we need to go out and protest. Absolutely. Nonetheless, we need to go out and vote. Yes. Nonetheless, we still need to speak up for the injustice around us. Yes. That application hasn't changed. The point I'm trying to get at is let us take that application. Let us take that solution and let us see that it is birthed in the gospel and that we'll never see that solution come to his fulfillment if we separate that solution from the truth of the gospel. That Christ has already done this. Let us cry out for justice because Christ has already earned that justice in himself. Let us cry out for our dividing walls to be destroyed and for unity to become one so that we are one people, that we understand that we are one, that we no longer have racial injustice and prejudice, and that we no longer have any of these type divisions. Yes, let us cry out for that, but let us see that that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us cry out these things. But if we cry out these things apart from the gospel, we will bankrupt these cries of their gospel worth. I'm not minimizing any of those things that we are doing. I'm not. I'm magnifying the gospel because this text magnifies the gospel. In the same way that we understand that we cannot earn our salvation, we cannot earn racial reconciliation. Not in this sense but we see that Christ has earned it for us. We as Christians need to understand that, need to apply that in our lives, and we need to advocate it for us in the culture around us. So truth number one, reconciliation doesn't need to be achieved, it needs to be applied. But as we talk about advo advocating in our world around us, I want us to see truth number two. The church doesn't only need to advocate, it needs to model. Let me say that again. The church doesn't only need to advocate, it needs to model. Let me say it 
more fully this way. The church doesn't only need to advocate for racial reconciliation in our culture, it needs to model racial reconciliation to our culture. We don't just advocate for it to our, in our culture, but we model it to our culture. We don't just look at the culture and say, this is what needs to happen. We need to say, look at the church. It already has happened. Now, I'm grateful. One of the things I love about our church is that within our 100 to 120 regular adults who attend New Hope, we have 24 different countries represented. I love that. I love seeing that diversity. But I want to speak to maybe the reality that others may be watching this or the norm within church that most churches in America are not diverse. Most churches in America are monoethnic. Now, let me make a distinction now even as I address this issue. Many churches are monoethnic because their culture is monoethnic. And that's fine if your church is modeling the reality of your culture around you. The issue becomes is when your church is monoethnic, but your culture is multi-ethnic. I want to take a moment here and I, I just want to speak to personal confession for a second. I want to tell a little bit of my story in order to make an emphasis. I grew up in a home in Memphis, Tennessee, in the South, where you have the normal cultural racial prejudices. But I grew up in a home that prided itself on not having those racial prejudices. I grew up in a home with an adopted brother who's biracial. I grew up in a home where he was adopted before I was ever born. I grew up in a home with a black brother. I grew up in a home where my parents have a, had over 90 foster children. And just because of just the reality that that meant foster children, my parents never said yes or no based off color. And so we had all different type of ethnicities within our home, but primarily African-American. I prided myself on that. I prided myself on loving and being a part of that. I prided myself on seeing color, but not being determined by color. I'm grateful for my upbringing. I'm grateful for the fact that I, that I have six nieces and nephew of color within my family. I love the fact that my family represents the diversity that I'm talking about. Point out, the reason why I'm telling you that, I'm not bragging, not at all. The reason why I'm telling you that is, is when I looked at my life and I looked at the people around me, I said, ah, I don't have racial prejudices. Look, look at my, look at my family. How, how can you say I have racial prejudices? But the truth is, the more that I began to allow the Holy Spirit to look into my heart, is I had racial prejudices. And here's one of the racial prejudices that I need to confess and that the church needs to pay attention to is this very thing that we're talking about. One of the things that the Holy Spirit prompted and showed in my heart when I'm dealing with racial prejudice and racial discrimination in our culture is that I was comfortable, comfortable being in a mono-ethnic church that was amidst a multi-ethnic community. I was okay that the church showed less kingdom diversity than the culture around me. 
my confession is I was comfortable with that. When we are more comfortable with the church being less diverse than the world around us, then we are lacking gospel conviction to do something about the cultural racial division in our culture around us. Church, hear me. When we read this text about what Christ has achieved for us, how he has divided and destroyed that, excuse me, he has destroyed that dividing wall of hostility so that there are no longer visual, ethnic barriers within a diverse culture, that we are now one, we should have a problem and that should bring a conviction when we look around at our church or we look at churches and see a mono-ethnic congregation amidst a multi-ethnic community. Once again, if you live in a mono-ethnic community, you can't expect to have a multi-ethnic church necessarily. So the issue isn't that you're a mono-ethnic congregation. The issue is if you're intentionally a mono-ethnic congregation when you could be and demonstrate kingdom realities. The church needs to model the very thing that we're advocating. Because, once again, the solution, which is racial and ethnic unity in our culture, is a solution that has resulted from a gospel achievement through the blood of Jesus. And so if the church who has the gospel solution cannot apply that gospel solution to themselves and model it to their culture, how can we ever advocate for our culture who doesn't yet have that gospel solution to have a gospel reality if they don't have the gospel? Therefore, we must not only advocate, but we must model. This is what we see in verses 19 and following. So then, you are no longer strangers. Remember, we said this is what you were, this is what Christ has done, and here's the result of it. The result of it is that you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Verses 19 and following speak to the result of what Christ has done. Christ has achieved reconciliation. Therefore, you are being built together into this beautiful body that God himself will dwell. God himself will dwell. Church, listen to me. Let us advocate, absolutely. I'm not minimizing us advocating. I'm not minimizing us protesting. I'm not minimizing us going to the voting booth. I'm not minimizing any other form of advocating for justice out there. I'm not minimizing it but I'm magnifying the gospel reality of what Christ has done and we must model that reality to the world around us. So New Hope, you're listening to this and you're hopefully are encouraged by the fact that we are a multi-ethnic church in a multi-ethnic community. Praise God for that. 
But that does not mean you don't have mono-ethnic comfortabilities in your heart. Let me get direct for a second. Community groups, how does this apply to you? Is your community group based off a specific ethnicity that you're comfortable with? Is your community group based off a specific group of people that you feel most comfortable with? So therefore, you build it on comfortability as opposed to gospel convictions of diversity? Individually, in your life, look at your friend group. Look at the people you eat with. Look at the people you talk to. You may go, well, I have no prejudice towards someone else. But if you are more comfortable in a mono-ethnic reality as opposed to a conviction to multi-ethnic diversity, then you, like me, need to confess this racial division in our own hearts. And it's not just between white and black, even though in America that has predominantly been the reality. But it's whatever ethnicity you are compared to other ethnicities. Let the gospel unite us more than the color of our skin divides us. Let us see color, but let it not determine how we live. Let the gospel conviction. And so if you're hearing this today, two challenges and takeaways as I begin to wrap up. I told you it'd be long and I apologize, but it needs to be said. Two, two, two applications. One is where do you see racial prejudices in your own heart? Where do you see that you are more comfortable based off certain realities over others that have nothing to do with gospel but only have to do with preferences in our own hearts? Might we confess those and might we see that Christ died to destroy that dividing wall to make us one? It's not that he saved both of us. It's not that he saved this ethnicity and he saved this ethnicity. It's that he saved all people as one. Well, ethnicity is not even in the conversation anymore. Color of skin is not even in the conversation anymore because that division has been destroyed. So therefore, we as a church in our own hearts must also see that destroyed. Allow the gospel to honestly speak to those moments. Then, as we model that, let us also advocate it. Jamar Tisby said that, said this, the refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression. Church, it's not okay for us to say, I have no prejudices in my heart. Other people are just gonna have to deal with it on their own. No, we as the church must advocate and model. Praise God, I pray that we, if we see any prejudices in our heart, that we would repent and confess them. But then we must do something about that. We must advocate because it is a gospel issue. We must take that gospel issue and we must apply those gospel solutions. Second, though, after you have examined your own heart, Christian, and allow the Holy Spirit to convict, the second thing I just simply ask this is, do you know Jesus? Because listen to me. If we try to apply the solutions of the gospel, which is racial reconciliation in our culture, without the gospel, 
we will bankrupt those solutions of their gospel worth, meaning you and I are limited, you are limited in fighting for racial reconciliation if you fight it without knowing Jesus. Because the heartbeat of the achievement of that racial reconciliation that we're fighting for is in the work of the blood of Jesus on the cross for you and for the people around us. Do you know Jesus? If you're disturbed by the racial injustice and the need for reconciliation in our culture, more so you should be disturbed by the fact that you need reconciliation between you and God. That you are in the wrong. That we have sinned, but God loved us so much that Ephesians 2, all of it tells us that through the blood of Jesus, he has achieved reconciliation between God and person and between person and person. But Jesus has done it. Would you turn to Jesus today? Church, I love you. I love Jesus. Let us continue to advocate. Let us continue to speak up. But let change begin with us. Let us turn to the word of God. Let us bow before Jesus and let us see that he has achieved the thing we already are longing for. Let it be applied to our lives. Then let us advocate and model it to the world around us in hope of it being applied to the world around us. Worship Jesus today. Serve Jesus today. Glorify Jesus today because he has already accomplished what you and I can never accomplish on our own. Reconciliation between us and God and reconciliation between us and person. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We take this moment, Holy Spirit, and would you do a work in our hearts? Would you convict us of any racial prejudice or racism in our own hearts? Let us see that it is not of God, that you have already destroyed that on the cross. And two, I pray for the person listening to this who does not know you. Might they see their need for reconciliation? Might they see that that reconciliation has already been achieved, but when they turn to you in faith, it is applied as a means of grace into their life and salvation. Might they know you today? Might they be reconciled unto you today? And then might that affect their lives and this culture around us? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray against the work of the enemy. I pray against individual, institutional, and systemic racism in our culture today. It exists, and if we say it doesn't, we're blind due to our own racial conformities and comfortabilities and prejudices in our own hearts. But let us want that change because the gospel has changed us because of the blood of Jesus. And so in the name of Jesus, we pray against those things. We believe in hope that, those, that reconciliation has already been achieved. We pray that as the church models and advocates that our community, our city, our nation, and this world would change. Father, forgive us. Black community, forgive us. 
Father, do a work in this nation. We need you. We love you. We long for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you and we hope to see you soon. 